Hello again. Uh, a couple of days off, um, a busy weekend, and uh, we're back at it. Here, here I am on Sunday morning. Uh, we will be going over um, Chapter 11, Racial and Ethnic Inequality. We're going to bypass global inequality for right now. The reason for that is um, my thoughts of concentrating on the things that happen in our own country for right now. Global inequality is very important. There's a lot of things you should know about inequality that's happening around the world. But most of all, right now, our basic foundation should be what's unequal in our country. Before I start, um, let me just say to you, um, as viewing these podcasts to you, I noticed that not everyone is listening. For those of you who are not listening, you're making a mistake. No matter how the clarity of my subject matter is, or how I uh, produce that to you, you should listen. Again, the, the things that I'm talking about are the things that, in my opinion, are the most important. I might not say them, or explain, explain them exactly like you want to see them explained. If there's a concern, you have my email. Please tell me. I am open-minded and I will listen to any suggestions. So, <clears throat> excuse me. My request is everyone on the online system here for sociology should be listening to these podcasts. They'll make a difference in your mark. Enough said. Racial and ethnic inequality. Now listen, uh, we shouldn't have a whole big complicated idea about racial inequality, but it's such an important chapter since the history of our country and what we have been going through uh, since we came here. Plymouth Rock. Malcolm X once said, um, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. You may want to take those words from Malcolm and um, understand the best way you can. Because this racial and ethnic inequality is centered around the white race and their attitudes and thoughts about minorities. Let's tell it like it is, ladies and gentlemen. Let's tell it like it is. The idea of 
300 years of slavery is not a really gold star in the history of our government or our people. If you are not a minority, if you are not black, if you are not Hispanic, if you are not Asian, if you are not an American Indian, and if you are not, um, uh, are, I should say, conform to the religious beliefs that uh, the majority of the country has, if you have a different gender preference, uh, how old you are, if you have a deformity, these are all prejudices. The idea of unequal treatment, the injustice that happens. We have all been through it on one level or another. If you are not a black man or a black woman, and you are a white man or a white woman, you have no clue what it is to be black because you're not. Let that sink in. If you are not Hispanic, if you're not from Puerto Rico, from the Dominican, You have no idea because you were born here with white privilege. Dr. Schaefer tries to get that across in this chapter. So let's begin. Let's get a couple of these definitions out there. Racial group describes a group that is set apart from others because of physical differences that have been taken, uh, that have taken on social significance. Whites, uh, African Americans, Asian Americans, all considered a racial group in the United States. While race does turn on physical differences, it is the culture of a particular con society that constructs and attaches social significance to those differences that attaches social significance to those differences. An ethnic group is set apart from others primarily because of its national origin or its distinctive cultural patterns. The flag of the United States. Let us not forget that we are not the only ones. The music of Puerto Rico, the traditions and styles of people from Africa, the Far East, and let us not ever forget the American Indian, 
who came here well before you did, who was here well before you were. A minority group is a subordinate group whose members have significantly less control or power over their lives than the members of the dominant or majority group. Plain and simple. The old say, saying, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Dr. Schaefer goes on to tell us that there are five identifiable basic properties of a minority group. One, members of a minority group experience unequal treatment. Two, members of a minority group share physical or cultural characteristics that distinguish, distinguishes them from the dominant group. Three, membership in a minority or dominant group is not voluntary. People are born into the group. Four, minority group members have a strong sense of group solidarity. Members of minority group number five generally marry others from the same group. A member of the dominant group is often unwilling to marry into a supposedly inferior minority group. I can't be any more clear than it is today. Race. The term race uh, group uh, refers to those minorities in the corresponding dominant group set apart from others <clears throat> by obvious physical differences. But what is an obvious physical difference, you might ask? Each society labels those differences that people consider important while ignoring other characteristics characteristics, excuse me, that could serve as a basis for social differentiation. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, one rule does not apply to all. You wink at someone here in the States, you're kind of uh, making them aware that uh, you're noticing them. Do it in France. And it's an insult. Different groups, different cultures have different standards. Now, when you live here, you have to live by our rules and regulations. There's no question about that. I am not, I am not a deterring from the fact that if you live here in America and you come from another country, uh, you have to live by our laws. But it does not mean that you don't respect the cultures and try to understand what other cultures do, act, and how they think. <clears throat> if someone from Africa or the Far East or any of the Hispanic uh, countries around this world 
tend to do things a little differently than you do as long as they're not breaking the laws of the United States, then learn about them. That's where all the criticism comes from. That's where all the racism comes from. For so many years that we thought that um, blacks were inferior because of the color of their skin. Really? Let's put an example out there. Let's reverse the roles. For all the uh, white men and women who are listening to this podcast, think about yourself being in chains for over 300 years. Think of yourself as being that minority that was inferior because you are white. Think about it. How would you feel? Probably uh, in, in this next phase is probably the most important parts of this chapter. Prejudice and discrimination. Prejudice and discrimination. They're not the same. They're different. They are different. And the reason they're different, I will explain as it explains to us in the book. Prejudice. You want to look it up? Page 248 in your book. Prejudice is a negative attitude towards an entire category of people, often an ethnic or racial minority. If you resent your roommate because he or she is sloppy, you're not necessarily guilty of prejudice. However, if you immediately stereotype your roommate on the basis of such characteristics as race, ethnicity, or religion, that is a form of prejudice. Prejudice seems to perpetuate false definitions of individuals and groups. Ah, uh, they're black, they must be on welfare. Ah, uh, they're uh, Hispanic, uh, they don't speak our language when, 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 we, when they come here. Think about the things you say. And where did you learn that? You were not born prejudiced. It's a learned skill. Maybe we should have a learned skill to stop the thought process of prejudice. It goes further. 
One important widespread ideology reinforces prejudice, and that is racism. Racism is the belief that one race is supreme and all others are innately inferior. Let's talk about the skinheads. Let's talk about Nazi Germany. Let's talk about the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, racists. Believing they were they are superior. Do I have to remind you about Adolf Hitler? Do I have to remind you that his first lieutenant um, Goebbels, through the orders of Hitler, killed six million Jews? It goes on. When racism prevails in a society, members of the subordinate group generally experience prejudice about racist attacks. In the United States Congress passed a hate crime statistic act. A hate crime is a criminal offense committed because of the offender's bias against race, religion, ethnic group, national origin origin, excuse me, or sexual orientation. You don't commit a crime against someone because they are gay. You don't commit a crime against someone because they are Muslims. You don't commit a crime against someone because they are black or that they speak Spanish and you don't understand. Just as a thought process, I don't have the current ones, but I'm just uh, giving you the ones out of chapter 12. In 2007 alone, more than 7,600 hate crimes were reported to authorities. 7,600. Now let me add something to that. 7,600 is the ones that were reported. In my experience as a researcher, how many were not reported? More than likely, it, it was at least half as much as this total. So if 7,600 is the ones that were reported, at least 3,300, uh, excuse me, uh, 3,800 were not reported. Let's say 4,000 just to round it off. And so that would mean in, uh, in today's uh, research analysis, that that would be not 7,600, it would be 11,600. One other thing before we go to before we go to discrim uh, discrimination, colorblind racism, which is on page 249, is the use of the principle of race neutrality to defend a racially unequal status quo. Proponents of race um, equality, 
excuse me, proponents of race neutrality claim they believe that everyone should be treated equally. However, the way in which they apply the principle to government opposed, they oppose affirmative action. They oppose public welfare assistance and to a large extent government-funded health insurance, all of which they see largely as favors to minority groups, yet they do not object to the practices of the privileged whites, such as college admissions criteria. They give preference to relatives of alumni. We don't have to go too far to understand the nationwide news that came out several months ago about the movie stars who lied and paid off certain uh, administrators in certain colleges so their children could get in. White privilege. Researchers have surveyed white and attitudes towards African Americans over the past several dec decades has reached an inescapable conclusions. First, people's attitudes do change. In periods of social people's dramatic attitudinal shifts can occur within a single generation. Second, less racial progress was made in the late 20th century and early 21st century than it was relative in the relative periods in the, of the 1950s and the 1960s. So we went backwards. We went backwards. So listen, uh, let's talk about discrimination. Prejudice often leads to discrimination. And what is discrimination? Discrimination is the denial of opportunities and equal rights to individuals and groups because of prejudice or other arbitrary reasons. Say that a white corporate president with prejudice against Asian Americans has to fill an executive position. The most qualified candidate for the job is Vietnamese American. If the president refuses to hire this candidate, instead selects an inferior white candidate, he or she is engaging in an act of racial discrimination. Prejudiced attitudes should not be equated with discriminatory behavior, although, although the two are generally related. They are not identical. Either condition can be pres present without the other. <coughs> Dr. Schaefer says this, A prejudiced person does not always act on his or her bias. The white corporate president, for example, might choose, despite his or her stereotypes, to hire the Vietnamese American. That would be prejudice without discrimination. On the other hand, a white corporate president with a completely respectful view of the Vietnamese Americans might refuse to hire them for an executive post out of fear that the biased clients would take their bills, business elsewhere. In that case, 
the president's action would constitute discrimination without prejudice. I want you to read that over when you have a moment. Page 249, the first two paragraphs under discriminatory behavior. It is relevant. There's one other part I want to go over specifically about prejudice and discrimination. And it starts on page 250 on the right-hand side and ends up on 251, uh, the privileges of the dominant. There's a woman uh, back in 1988, Peggy McIntosh, that wrote and had a research on the privileges of the white people. Peggy McIntosh is Scottish. She's as white as white can be. The whitest thing that you know, that you know uh, she's whiter than that. But she had an idea and a thought about white privilege. Dr. Shaver says, white privilege refers to the rights or immunities granted to people as a particular benefit. The feminist scholar Peggy McIntosh in 1988 became interested in white privilege after noticing that most men would not acknowledge that there, there were privileges, excuse me, that there were privileges, privileges attached to being male, even if they would agree that being fem female had its disadvantages. Did white people suffer from similar blind spot regarding their racial privilege? She wondered. She was intrigued. McIntosh began to list all the ways in which she benefited from her whiteness. She soon realized that the list of unspoken advantages was long and significant. Let me tell you a few. McIntosh found that as a white person, she really needed to step out of her own comfort zone. No matter where she went, if she wished, she could spend time, most of her time, with people of her own race. She could find a good place to live in a particular, in a pleasant neighborhood, buy the food she liked to eat from, for, from almost any grocery store and get her hairstyle at almost any salon. She could attend a public meeting without feeling like she did not belong. McIntosh discovered, too, that her skin color opened doors for her. She would cash checks and use credit cards without suspicion, browse through stores without being shadowed by security guards. She could be seated without difficulty in a restaurant. <clears throat> If she was asked to, if she asked to see a manager, she could assume that he or she would be her own race. If she needed help from a doctor or a lawyer, she could get it. McIntosh also realized that her whiteness made a job of 
parenting easier. She did not need to worry about protecting her children from people who didn't like them. She could be sure that her school books would show pictures of people who look like them and that their history textbooks would describe white people's achievements. She knew that the television programs they would watch would include white characters. Finally, McIntosh had to admit that others did not constantly evaluate her in racial terms. When she appeared in public, she didn't need to worry about her clothing or behavior might reflect poorly on white people. If she was recognized for an achievement, it was seen as her achievement, not an entire race, and not ever assuming that the personal opinions that she voiced should those all be of all white people. Because Macintosh blended in with the people around her, she wasn't always on stage. These are not all the privileges white people take for granted. As a result of the membership in a dominant group, racial group in the United States, there is a tremendous advantage over, uh, over equally qualified or equally qualified blacks. Whites, whiteness does not carry the privileges too much greater than the extent that most white people realize. They don't even realize it, what they have. Please remember the idea of what discrimination and prejudice are. The remainder of the chapter, I want you to concentrate on what we talked about. A couple of highlights I want you to read and understand is page 253, racial profiling. It's at the bottom right-hand side of that page. Segregation on page 255. And then uh, race and ethnicity in the United States, where it, break down, it, break down, it breaks down African Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Arab Americans. Mexican-Americans, Latinos, Puerto Ricans, Cuban-Americans. I'm not asking you to remember every sentence, get a general theme of what those are. I think you'll come up with the answer. Any questions, uh, please again, send me an email. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon again. Uh, after that lengthy uh, last chapter on uh, ethnic and uh, racial uh, discrimination, uh, we go to another type of discrimination: a stratification by gender. And uh, you know, you'd have to go back a little ways, but you should uh, if you can't remember all the ideas of stratification. 
um, and go back to page uh, 193, give you a um, definition of stratification, which is a structured ranking of an entire group uh, entire of entire groups of people that perpetuate unequal economic rewards and power in our society or in a society. The idea of what it perpetuates, unequal economic rewards in power, what stratification is. And how does that connect itself with gender? And how does that connect itself with the idea of how we think of gender, you know, and our roles, the gender roles that we have acquired over the years? Well, it would start out on page 273, and if you read a bit about uh, gender roles, uh, it's how we're defined, our expectations regarding the proper behavior, attitudes, and activities of males and females. So there's, there's a system here. There's expectations of how you should act and react, how you should act as a man, or how you should act as a woman, or how you should react as a boy, or how you should react as a girl. And that starts when you're born. And it's been going on for thousands of years, ladies and gentlemen. Stratification by gender just didn't start yesterday, as we all know. Stratification um, hits everybody different ways, but it certainly hits everyone. Females take the brunt of it. There's no question about that. And they still do. Sorry, ladies. I wish I could do something about that. And the only way I can do things about that is do what I'm doing right now, speaking to you, trying to have some correspondence with you and see how you react, what your behavior is, and what your thought process is, and what's the result of all of that. Goes on on page 273 at the bottom of gender roles in the United States. <clears throat> Dr. Schaefer kind of puts this into a bit of um, a um, small little box, if I may. Male babies uh, get blue blankets, females get pink ones. Boys are expected to play with trucks and blocks and toy soldiers. Girls receive dolls and kitchen, uh, kitchen goods. Boys must be masculine, active, aggressive, tough, daring, and dominant. But girls must be soft, emotional, sweet, and submissive. Yeah, submissive. Imagine that, telling, telling us that you need to be submissive. What's society thinking about with that one? Uh, but that's what we are taught. There's, there's no question about that. Uh, we've learned that from a very young age. Learn that again when you got born. 
If you're a girl, mom buys you something pink. If it's a boy, mom buys you something blue so we can distinguish when we're that young. Someone comes over, she's got pink on. Oh, what a cute girl. He has blue on. Oh, what a cute boy. Think about it. Think about how we accept things because of what society says. Woman's gender role, how does a girl come to develop a feminine self-image? Or a boy develops one that is masculine. Does that all happen? That's on page 274. In part, they do this so by identifying with female or males in their families, in their neighborhoods, and in the media. Families, friends, media. Covers most of it. Doesn't cover it all. Um, but if when we include the media, we have to also include not just what we see on the idiot box, which I call the TV, but also what we what we call um, uh, the printed media, books, magazines, um, things of that nature, plays, theater, songs. Think about it. Think about think about the music that you hear today. Think about some of those lyrics and what's written down and how it stratifies both men and women. That idea of stratification. Men gender roles, which would be on the next page, uh, which would be page uh, 275. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> State stay-at-home fathers until recent. Uh, decades such as an idea was unthinkable yet in a nationwide survey done uh, in 2002 which is quite a while ago 69% of the respondents said that if one parent stays home with the child or children it makes no difference whether the parent is a mother or a father only 30% of uh, thought that the mother should be the one to stay at home interesting but while people's conception of gender roles are obviously changing, the fact is that men who stay at home to care for children are still an unusual phenomenon. That's 2002. Here we are. It's going to be 2020 in a few months, and that still stands. There are more. How many more are there? Maybe something you might, might want to look up. Maybe something that might be on an exam on your final, I would pay attention to that. Also says about uh, men, uh, while uh, attitudes towards parenting may be changing, studies show that little change in the traditional male role. Male roles are socially constructed in much the same way women's are. Family, peers, and media all influence how a boy or a man comes to view his appropriate role in society. Males do not conform to the socially constructed gender role, uh, face constant criticism, even humiliation, both from children when they are boys and from adults when they are men. It can be agonizing to be treated as a chicken or a sissy, as a youth 
uh, particularly in such remarks uh, that from one's uh, father or brothers. And grown men who pursue non-traditional occupations such as preschool teaching or nursing must constantly deal with others, other misgivings and strange looks. How many times has pe have people did double takes on male nurses? More 10 years ago than now? Possibly. Possibly. We were not born to have these thought patterns um, to the extent of um, labeling people that stratification, um, keeping um, those types of thoughts uh, that had been going around, going off for generations uh, when we were born. We weren't born uh, to have stratification about gender. It's a learned skill. It was taught to you by your parents, by their parents, and, their, and your grandparents, and your great-grandparents, and so on and so forth and down the line. It's a hard chain to break. We are breaking it. But it's a hard chain to break. Let's not kid ourselves. It goes on and uh, talks about um, a few other things. And uh, if I could just uh, read something that to me is uh, fairly important at the bottom of 276. It says, in the past 40 years, inspired in good part by a contemporary feminist movement examined later in this chapter, increasing numbers of men in the United States have criticized the restrictive aspects of a traditional male gender role, some men have taken strong public positions in support of women's struggle for full equality, that even organize volunteer associations for the purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, today's date, here we are, November 6th. 2019, today's date, you have females and males that have the same job title, the same responsibility, the same education, everything is the same as far as uh, being employed by a particular company, but the, the men make 70, per, excuse me, the men, the men make 30% more than the females. Gender stratification? I think so. Uh, it goes on. Um, I would like you to just uh, read about the... Um, Feminist uh, perspective, which is on 278, it, uh, it's at the bottom of the page, um, and it goes at the bottom left-hand side, it goes to the right-hand side. There's some very important information in there. Uh, and let's talk about uh, one other thing here. Uh, well, a few more. Woman, the oppressed majority. Women, 
the oppressed majority. Many people, both male and female, find it difficult to conceive of women as a subordinate or an oppressed group, yet take a look at the political structure in the United States. Look at that. How many, how many um, governors do we have that are female in the U.S.? Look it up. How many U.S. senators, how many congresswomen? Um, more now than there ever was before. But is there an unequal balance? Are, are females not smart enough as far as men are concerned? Has society just put them in a little uh, rabbit hole and said, this is, these are the only jobs you should have? You don't know. You can't run a government. You can't be a legislator. You can't be a senator, so forth and so on. Funny thing about it is that we have a few uh, Supreme Court justices that are females. Interesting. Read about the oppressed majority. Sexism and sex discrimination, um, which would be on page 20. Sexism is the ideology that one sex is superior over the other. Well, of course, everybody knows that men are stronger, right? Isn't that true? Well, you see it in sports, don't you? Female tennis players, male tennis players. Females can't hit the ball as hard as men can. Golfers. Women can't hit the ball as far as men can. They're stronger. Uh, gentlemen, let me just uh, say one thing about that. Uh, anytime you want to try to go through nine months of labor, you, um, you let me know. See how strong you really are. But we still discriminate against women because they're not as strong. And they're more emotional. Guess what? Try going through those nine months. Institutional discrimination was defined as the denial of opportunities and equal rights to individuals and groups that results from the normal operations of society. In the same sense, women suffer from both individual acts of sexism, such as sexist remarks, and institutional sexism. I'd like you to read that chapter. Uh, excuse me, that portion of this chapter, which is page 280. Um, How about women in work? Uh, how about the social consequences of women in work? You'll find some of that on page um, 283 at the bottom, social consequences of, of women's employment. Today, many women have faced uh, the challenge of trying to juggle work and family. The situation has many social consequences for one thing. It puts pressure on the child care facilities, public financing for, of daycare, and even the fast food industry, which provides many of the meals women used to prepare themselves. For another, it raises questions about the, what responsibilities male wage earners have in the household. 
We talked about that a little earlier, about five minutes, ten minutes ago, saying how, you know, it's okay for men to uh, be at the house and take care of the kids. Well, that's true. How many do that, though? Look it up. Ask Google. See, see what Google has to say. Google has the most up-to-date information. Uh, there's a um, sociologist named Ali Hochschild Hush, um, that published some things uh, back in 1989 and uh, 1990 2005. And I've used the phrase second shift to describe the double burden work outside the home followed by childcare and housework that many women face and few men share uh, equitably. On the basis of interviews with the observations of 52 couples over an eight-year period, Hochschild um, reports that wives and not their husbands drive home from the office while planning domestic schedules and play dates for children, and then begin their second shift. Hochschild's uh, um, whole idea of what this is about. They start their second shift. Drawing on national studies, she concludes that women spend 15 fewer hours each week in leisure activities than husbands. And each year, these women work an extra month of 24-hour days because of the second shift. Over a dozen years, they work an extra year of every 24-hour days. The greater amounts of time women put into caring for their children in a lesser degree into their housework takes a special toll on women who are pursuing careers. In a survey published in the Harvard Business Review, about 40% of the women had indicated that they had voluntarily left work for month, months or years compared to only 24% of men. I wonder why that is, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon again. Uh, We're going to talk a bit about um, another stratification, and this one is by age. And uh, the same... The same uh, analysis, it's just different in relation to one was gender, this is age. And what do we do with that? And how do we, how do we categorize them? And how, how do they fit into that uh, structural power and employment struggle that everyone goes through? And where are they on that study? Where are they on that graph? It says here, there's, um, uh, this is on page 295, we'll go over briefly. The model of five basic properties of a minority or a subordinate group, which aged people are, by the way, can be applied to all the people in the United States to clarify their subordinate status. <coughs> five of them. 
<coughs> Excuse me. And I, I, I wish you to um, not memorize these, but but know them. You might they might come in helpful with a um, with a research essay you might do. All the people experience unequal treatment and employment and may face prejudice and discrimination. All the people share physical characteristics that distinguish them from younger people. In addition, their cultural preferences and leisure time activities often differ from those of the rest of the society. Membership in this disadvantaged group is involuntary. No one asked them to be a part of that group. Society put them there. All the people have strong sense of group solidarity as it's reflected in the growth of senior citizen centers, retirement communities, and advocacy programs. They find comfort in the solidarity of knowing that people their age and people who surround them have the same concerns. All the people generally are married to others of comparable age, mostly. And there's certainly exceptions to the rule. Look around. Look, to, look that statistic up more, more than likely. More than likely. Um, it goes on to talk a bit about um, the labeling theory. We label these people. These are people, your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents who's ever alive that's over, you know, 62 years old, which is his retirement age, if you want to put some kind of um, bar on, over a bar on that, uh, you know, um, to realize it. Labeling, it says here on page 297, just who we... Who are the elderly? Labeling theorists who study the way reality is constructed through our culture and social interactions have noted that recently our society has begun, begun to reconsider what makes a person old. 1975 social scientists were suggesting the old age should be defined not in terms of how old one is, but how one uh, but how uh, one long can be expect how one can be expected how long to live a life expectancy length. The age of which one is labeled old rises. Some have suggested that the threshold of old age should begin. In, in last 10 or 15 years of a person's expected life. Using that definition, old age would begin at around age 70 or 75, at least for those of us who live in the United States. I don't know where they get those figures. There's many studies, different researches. Uh, and let's say they're right. Old age starts around 70, 75. Let's just say that. Doesn't give you the right to discriminate against them. Doesn't give you the right to make fun of them. Certainly doesn't give you the right 
to have any type of stratification views of them. They've already given at the office. They've already put in their, their years. If anything, you should be respecting them, that they are alive and well and doing something for society, whatever it is. We tend to forget the elderly. Oh, I don't want to look like that. I don't want to be that old. I don't want this. I don't want that. Well, when you're going through life, you shall see. There are books out there talking about the elderly and what to expect. Maybe you should pick one up. But for now... Understand this labeling theory. Then there's these role transitions. And if I could, we simply do not experience these things the same way at different points of our life course. For example, one study found that even falling in love differs according to where we are in our life course, young unmarried adults tend to treat love as a non-committal game or an obsession characterized by possessiveness and dependency. People over the age of 50, however, are much more likely to see love as an involving, involving commitment, and they tend to take practical approach to finding a partner who meets a set of rational criteria. The life course... By the way, the life course, from the time you're born till the day you die, till the time you die, affects the manner in which we relate to one another. Sounds like perfect sense to me. That you relate to one another from the time you're born to the time you die, and as you go on your journey, you learn more. You learn a better way to communicate. You learn a more compassionate way. You, you learn a smarter way. You present yourself differently. want you to uh, read about the sandwich generation, adults who simultaneously try to meet uh, the competing needs of their parents and their children. It's on page um, 299, um, bottom left-hand side. Please understand and read that. You get a lot out of it. Page 302, um, the graying of America. Hmm, Interesting. Uh, when Lenore Schaefer ballroom dancer tried to get on The Tonight Show, she was told she was too young. She was in her early, this was in her early 90s. Uh, when she turned 101, she made it. But even at that age, Lenore was, is no longer unusual in our society. Today, people over 100 can constitute proportionally the country's fastest growing age group. Let that sink in for a minute. Compared to the rest of the population, 
the elderly are more likely to be female than male. Men to tend to die at a higher rate than women at every age. But old age, women outnumber men by a ratio of three to two. The gap widens with the advancing age so that among the oldest, uh, the ratio becomes five to two. Women live longer. Get over it, guys. The elderly also have more likely to uh, others to be white. About 80% of the elderly are white and non-Hispanic. Although this segment of the population is becoming more racially and ethnic, ethnically diverse, the higher death rates of racial and ethnic minorities, together with continuing immigration of younger Latinos and Asians, is likely to keep it more white than the nation uh, than the nation as a whole. Finally, the elderly are the more likely than the rest of the population to live in certain states. The highest population of all the people is in Florida, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Iowa, West Virginia, and Arkansas. However, they will be there will be soon change. In two thousand, Florida was the state most populated by the elderly, seventeen point six percent. Twenty five years. Um, in the, about 25 years more than half of the states will have an even greater po- population than the elderly farm does now. So they're looking at tw- down the line. 25% more people elderly will be living in other states other than Florida. Interesting. The growing of the United States is a phenomenon that can no longer be ignored, either by social scientists or by government. Policymakers, advocates for the elderly have spoken out on a wide range of issues. Politicians court the votes of elderly of the older people since they are the group that most likely are to register to vote. Ah, very interesting. So, ladies and gentlemen, there's also something on ageism, uh, wealth and income. I would certainly want you to read that. Um, The thing is this. Understand as best as you can, although you're not of that age. Read enough about the elderly. Understand what they do. As best as you can. At your age. Ask your parents. Talk to your grandparents. Talk to the people who are older. Uh, you'll get a lot of wise, wise advice from them. Understand the idea of respecting the elderly and respect what they have gone through their lives. And you know what? They're living older than they ever have before. Please understand that and take that into consideration. Again, um, just as a side note, read the podcasts, listen to the podcasts, excuse me, listen to them. They're here for a reason. Um, I haven't seen a lot of uh, the whole class uh, listening to them. You should be. It's up to you. You're going to have your midterms and your finals, uh, and I believe this is a a unique way of 
having you learn. It's just not sending you a syllabus and giving you dates for either quizzes or midterms or finals or whatever, and then I send you a mark. This is a little different. It gets a little more personal. Something I enjoy. And I hope you are enjoying it. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. hope you're learning something from the podcasts. I point out particular segments of a chapter for a reason. Understand those. And any questions, uh, you certainly can email me. Um, If you have to and you need to talk to me, um, send me an email um, and I'll send you my number. I'm here to help in the best possible way I can. Um, This is not a traditional online class, that is for sure. You have help that is willing to assist you. The point of having a live conversation. Remember that. Have a great day. We'll be talking soon.